What's going on? Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. Today's episode is presented by Volkswagen. Whatever your definition of family is, there's an SUVW that suits it. And I'm here with my family, my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Cash, talk to me, man. Wow, man. Um, good thing I don't have commitment issues with you because uh, I'd be scared off by you saying that we're, we're family now. That's a big step in the relationship. But all right, I dig it. It's finals well, time. I mean, man. look, like now, now that we're doing two episodes a week, I just, yeah. uh, you know, very true. Closer to you than ever. Yeah, Volkswagen has made us a family. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's finals time. Let's let's go. LeBron versus the Heat. <clears throat> Pat Riley versus the Lakers, which I don't think is getting actually enough attention. Um, yeah, well, it's just just been buried, I think, by all the other connections and through lines in yeah. this series. And I also got to say, man, I, I'm really happy for you because I feel like all season. Like this is what you've been building towards, man. You you came into the season talking about the FU season that you believe LeBron was going to have, which he has absolutely delivered on. You came into this season talking me out or trying to talk me out of my doubts about the Heat, talking about Heat culture and how grimy and scrappy and competitive this team would be, in spite of what I saw as some structural problems with their roster. Absolutely proved correct on that front, and here we are. Heat culture versus Lakers exceptionalism in the finals. How are you feeling, man? I'm feeling pretty good. You know, I feel uh, I feel like I've proven myself now. I'm really co-host for you after an entire year of you uh, shaming me. But uh, I think now well, the onus is on me to prove myself yeah. as a worthy co-host to you. Man. Yeah, you're up. You better come in the next season with some fire takes that I don't believe in that end up coming correct. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, man, oh, I think, look, I, I am excited for the series for, yeah, part of it is because I, you know, I felt, and you know what, I wouldn't even say I felt this was possible all along because, you know, even though I've been a big believer in the Heat, I really at no point did I say I think they'd win the East. I, I said that, you know, I thought they were like more of a fringe contender than anyone thought, and I definitely thought that they could beat the Bucks, which ended up having, but I didn't, I didn't even see this. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely exciting for me as someone who did believe in both these teams in various ways as someone who really anticipated and maybe even like in my own head was like trying to will it into existence in a way with like the whole LeBron FU season just because I I also just wanted to see it so bad right like you know we laughed at the Lakers last year which it's easy to do because as you mentioned Lakers exceptionalism they've been the dominant franchise for so long especially in our lifetimes right like you know everyone talks about Lakers Celtics in our generation, like we've seen the Celtics win one championship. If you were born after 1986, you've seen them win one championship. The Lakers have, you know, in our lifetimes alone, been to the finals, I want to say, almost like 10 times. So it is fun when you see that team fail and go, you know, almost a decade without any kind of legitimate accomplishment. Having said all that, it was also kind of sad to see what happened last year because it's LeBron. And, you know, the fact that it's the Lakers shouldn't distract from the fact that like it was sad to see LeBron go out that way, go out without a playoff appearance, you know, miss significant time for the first time in his career, have people starting to question and rightfully so that's fair, you know, whether father time was going to start catching up to him. So, you know, the whole like LeBron's going to have an FU season. I did truly believe it, but I also really wanted to believe it, you know? And so I'm happy that we're here. I'm happy that after a one-year break, a very, very long one-year break, LeBron's back in the finals, you know? <laughs> and and I'm really looking forward to it because as I'm sure we're going to get into, and as we both written about uh, in a finals preview that should be up by the time people are listening to this, there are a lot of like really fascinating matchup, like intricacies and, and just general basketball coolness. You know, between these 
two teams when it comes to the matchup. And so, you know, the narratives aside and the LeBron versus Miami and, and Pat Riley Lakers reunion, like all that stuff aside, it, it should actually be like a really, really good, a really competitive and a really fascinating finals. Yeah, we'll get into the matchup coolness in a bit. Uh, I, I did want to ask you, so like, I don't even know really how I feel about this, but I do think it's crazy. I mean, LeBron makes the decision, obviously, to go to the Lakers in spite of the fact that he doesn't have a superstar teammate lining up to join him there in year one. He slogs through a, a tough season, suffers, you know, the first significant injury of his career, misses the playoffs in pretty embarrassing fashion is getting dragged, you know, for not being able to do it in the Western conference. And I don't know how much of this was just blind faith on his part that either he was going to be able to drag the team to competitiveness or him being there was just ultimately going to be enough to get another star player to join him. But he did sort of say the quiet part out loud when after game five against the Nuggets, when they had punched their ticket to the finals, after AD had just a monster series, LeBron said, this is the reason why I wanted to be a teammate of his. This is why I brought him here. <laughs> I mean, not very so. Subtle. So look, obviously, I think, you know, a lot of people are going to kind of take issue with that and consider it you know, an, an admission of tampering, which in a sense, I suppose it is. I think there's another way to look at it where you can just give LeBron credit for being an absolutely masterful string puller and potentially consider giving him votes for executive of the year. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it kind of goes back to what I, I've said so many times. Some of the stuff like players get ripped for when the whole point of this damn thing is to win. And it boggles my mind. Like, you know, even whether it's like trash talk that people take exception with and like they forget these dudes are competing at an insane level or even, you know, I talked about it, I think last week or two weeks ago, I don't remember now when, you know, everyone kind of went crazy about LeBron's comments about how he was pissed off about not winning MVP. And I was like, look, I think Giannis should have won. But at the same time, I was like, Yo, how do you like, how do you expect LeBron freaking James to react to not winning MVP? Like, and to me, this is like another example where it's like, Yes. Is it, do I understand why this concerns small markets? Do I un completely understand why if you're a Pelicans fan, you know, 48 of them that exist, like why this would upset you hundred percent. I, I don't, I'm not trying to undersell that by any stretch of the imagination. Having said that, if you're LeBron, it's like, yeah, like no duh. He wanted to get a player like Anthony Davis to be his teammate. He's been around long enough to know you cannot, even the great mighty LeBron James cannot win a title by himself. He knows that better than anyone. Everyone kind of going nuts. I can't believe he said that. It's like, well, I don't know. I can. <laughs> he wanted a superstar. He's LeBron James. He wields a lot of power. He got it done. Like, I, I don't know what else there is to say. Again, fully understanding why people in New Orleans are upset. But you know, you know what that's kind of like? And I understand, like, completely unrelated. But it's kind of similar, you know, like everyone freaking out about the ta the Trump tax stuff. And it's like, yo, we, it's like, we already knew, we already knew what kind of fraud Donald Trump was. Now, was it great reporting? Absolutely. Is it something you should be concerned about? Absolutely. But like the people that are like, so, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's like, no, wait, I can't what did you think this. was going on? Exactly. Now, again, I'm not at all correlating the two because LeBron is a great humanitarian that has like done a lot for the world. And this is basketball and, you know, player movement and empowerment. But 
I think it's similar in the sense of like, why are people shocked? Like, what you you didn't you didn't know what you're the only thing you're upset about is he admitted it, which is the same thing with the MVP thing. The only thing people are upset about is that he admitted he was pissed off. Because if someone asked you, do you think LeBron's pissed about finishing second? You would have said yeah. Well, I think it's a little bit different than the MVP thing because you know him coming out and just saying it. I think that indicates a certain sort of brazenness, where you know he's dropped the facade and it's almost like. You know, he's putting it out there and knows that there isn't really going to be any kind of repercussion. And I think maybe that's the thing that, and I don't know, I honestly don't know if people are actually really up in arms about this or if that's just like a straw man that I'm building because most of what I saw on Twitter was actually just jokes about it. Yeah, I definitely built a straw man. But, you know, I th- you know for, from the league's perspective, from small, markets, from small market team's perspective, I think it's fair to be a little concerned about, you know, LeBron putting his thumb on the scale in this particular way where, you know, his best friend essentially is a powerful agent in the league. And that agency has, you know, played a big part in the way that the deck is being shuffled. And obviously, you know, the first indication that something might have been brewing here was when, Anthony Davis signed with Clutch, I think right before the start of the 2018-19 season. After the Pelicans had had, you know, like a pretty nice run where they'd swept the Blazers in the first round. Do not get me started. (laughs) We'll have plenty of time for that when we talk about the finals preview. But you know what I'm saying? So I, I, I think from that perspective, obviously the league is going to be concerned no matter what about you know, it's teams and it's general managers kind of losing the rope a little bit. And, you know, the players sort of taking things into their own hands. But I mean, that is, that's just kind of been the direction that the game's been headed for a while. And LeBron, I think certainly has expedited that, but I think the, you know, the game today is sort of all about power brokers. And ultimately when it comes to player-to-player tampering, I really don't think that there is anything that you can do about it because these players are colleagues and friends. And at the end of the day, if you're comparing, you know, look, I've been in New Orleans once. I had a great time there. It's a city that is like vibrant and full of culture that I would be happy to live in. Like if I had my druthers, I would live there before I lived in Los Angeles. That's just me. But, you know, generally speaking, when it comes to small markets and the, the, limited exposure sometimes that that can lead to, you know, whether it's a quality of life decision, there are certain factors that you can't really control for. And if, for instance, Giannis decides a year from now that he doesn't want to live in Milwaukee anymore and it has nothing to do with basketball reasons and it has nothing to do with him even really being tampered with, it's just that he's ready to live somewhere else and swim in a bigger pond, then that's just kind of the reality. Uh, and I think we just need to take that into consideration as well. Like these are human beings who want to have the choice of where to live. And sometimes they're just making, you know, quality of life decisions that affect them and their family, their earning potential and a whole host of other things that may not have anything to do with basketball. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I mean, how many times have I gone on that rant, right? About how like, you know, it, it's not, it's not the media's fault as something like, like, Oh, like the media's trying to push a guy to a bigger market or they're, they're starting these rumors, you know, about Giannis needing a bigger market. And then it's like, no, like, is it a, is it a story to write about when an NBA superstar, you know, might move? Of course, because it, it it's like a landscape altering 
decision for the league. But as you just noted, like, as I've said countless times, just like for the rest of the world, whether it's business or tech or whatever the case may be, there are certain places you'd rather be. And, you know, on the, you mentioned like for you personally, like based on what you know of New Orleans and LA, if you, if you had to pick one, you'd probably pick New Orleans, which again, is like completely fair. Like that's your own opinion. As I've said many times, I think if like, if you go by majority, I think a lot of people would identify with the fact that, you know what? If I had my choice, I probably would live in New York instead of Oklahoma City or LA instead of, you know what I mean? And I don't think that's like a wrong thing to say or an evil thing. And I don't think it makes a player like some bad person or some like stargazer that, oh, he needs to be in the bright lights. Like, yeah, because he's human. Like a lot of people want that. And the one thing I'll say too in this regard is that LeBron going to LA, obviously, like there's a lot of reasons he probably wanted to go there. One, it's LA, you know, um, he was becoming more involved in Hollywood, which again, that's a completely reasonable factor based on what he wants to do with his life. But, you know, I'm sure at least part of it was he probably knows, you know, as someone who's going to need to probably attract another star, LA is a lot easier to do that than Cleveland. But I will say, you know, no one was really up in arms when LeBron going back to Cleveland kind of fast-tracked them getting Kevin Love and turning Andrew Wiggins into Kevin Love. And LeBron, in case you forgot, pulled a lot of strings there too and, you know, got that Cleveland a big three, and it ended up resulting in Cleveland breaking that, you know, whatever it was, 50-something year title drought across all sports. And it was seen as this, like, feel-good story because it was Cleveland, right? It wasn't the glamour market. It wasn't the legacy franchise and the exceptionalist fan base. Like, but it's the same thing. So... You can't look at it one way and be like, oh, what a great story. Cleveland overcame all this. And then when he does the same thing, just in a market that maybe you're a little envious of in some respects as a fan, then look at it as like, wow, this is ridiculous. You know, he's he's running the league. Yeah, and I don't think anybody would have had anything to say about this if LeBron had like lured Anthony Davis to LA as a free agent. I think, you know, the, the questionable thing, I suppose, is that Anthony Davis was still under contract with the Pelicans and LeBron saying, I brought him here which technically he's not allowed to do. But the reality is the Pelicans were not obligated to honor Anthony Davis's trade request. They did it because it actually served them. Right? Rather than hold on to him for another season and probably be, you know, at best a first round playoff out, they got a huge haul in return. And now their future is looking awfully bright. So... I think these things can be mutually beneficial. And again, we may be constructing a straw man here, but I don't necessarily think that it's anything to be up in arms about. And I think for the most part, it's worked out pretty well for everybody involved. I was going to say pro sports like seems to be the only field or career field where like the general public expects people to put external factors above their own wants and like career ambitions you know like in any other field it's like if you made a decision that was best for you and it was like very clearly like just better for your career your exposure whatever the case may be no one's gonna say oh like he left a smaller company or like he went to a bigger city for that like guy ran from the grind man it's like no people would be like oh congrats man like way to go you really you stepped it up like you know what i mean like pro sports is the only uh field of play where it's like the opposite you almost get criticized for doing that because it's you're, you're running from the grind or whatever the case may be yeah i mean like maybe politics would be the only other one but that's right. like literally you get elected to serve <laughs> exactly. like a specific set of constituents so it's not the same thing uh anyway i feel like maybe we've spent enough time on this but i just think you know the way that LA went from being this 
you know, disaster disappointment last year to punching through to the finals with a 12 and three romp through the Western conference. I don't know. I think we lose sight of just how extraordinary that leap was. And obviously, you know, getting a player of Anthony Davis's caliber made that possible. But I think, you know, kind of low key, they hit on a lot of decisions in the margins that helped them get there. And I think, Frank Vogel seemed like a pretty underwhelming hire when it happened. And Wasn't I think he was their first choice. That's right. Who was their first choice? I don't even remember. Man, was it Ty Lu? Right. I think it was Ty Lu. I think, yeah, you're right. It was Ty Lu. Yeah. Um, but he's done a fantastic job. And, you know, Danny Green has been pretty disappointing in the bubble, but, uh, you know, he helped them a lot in the regular season. And even though he hasn't been playing well on an individual level, I think he's still an important part of their team's success because of his gravity as a shooter and his defense. Contavious Caldwell Pope, you know, even Rondo, I have to admit, has has proved to be a useful player for them. Um, you know, yeah, the the big men that they signed on the cheap have proven to be valuable. Like they, you know, they're waiting on potentially getting Kawhi, and the way that they pivoted in the wake of him signing with the Clippers and constructed a very functional team around their two megastars uh, has has been impressive. So. We'll, we'll get to talking about the Heat as well. Um, but before we do that, I think we should just quickly talk about the Lakers' intra-city rivals. Do we call them rivals? I mean, we, we didn't Little brothers. Get, Let's call them the little brothers. We didn't get to see them square off in the playoffs. I was going to say, unfortunately, I don't think it was unfortunate because, you know, that Nuggets run yeah. was fantastic. I thought they deserved to win. And for entertainment purposes, seeing the Clippers flame out the way that they did I mean, it was just great grist for the content mill. So I was going to um, say for content purposes too, everyone go watch uh, my, my episode on the Clippers uh, debacle on, 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 on Unfiltered uh, on the Scorch yeah. YouTube channel. I cannot believe how quickly you churn out these scripts, man. Like I've, I've written a few of them and it's a grind. It takes me a long time, but oh, you just you, know, you just spit them out. The, the fans can't say I run from the grind. <laughs> <laughs> um, Unlike these superstars going to the Lakers and the Warriors and... Yes, and the Clippers. You may recall that Kawhi Leonard and Paul George engineered their way to the Clippers last, geez, I, last More summer, than a year ago, yeah. I guess, yeah, 14 months ago, something like that. And that established the Clippers as a championship contender in a lot of people's minds, mine included, championship favorites. They flame out in the second round, and yesterday announced that they had parted ways with head coach Doc Rivers, which I think given all that we had talked about in terms of how their season fell apart, the role that Doc Rivers played in that, the fact that in you know seven years with that team, despite having almost every season, I think, you know, a borderline championship level core, he has not advanced past the second round. He has now blown 3-1 leads twice. Uh, as you pointed out before we started recording, he's now blown 3-1 leads three times in his career when no other coach has ever been at the helm of more than one such collapse. So I think in a vacuum, I don't think it's an unjustifiable or even particularly surprising decision. I think some of the things around the kind of central focus, I guess, on X's and O's or particular decisions that he made in that series against Denver or 
just what this Clippers team looked like compared to expectations made it maybe a little bit more surprising than it would otherwise be. So what was your reaction to hearing this news? I was shocked. And again, it's it's so interesting because as you mentioned, in a vacuum, like you look at the facts and really, if it was any other coach in any other market, we would almost be just waiting for the hammer to fall, right? And like after that collapse, you know, you tell me, um, a coach of a team for seven seasons, which basically was a contender for six of them, right? And the one year they weren't, they ended up winning 42 games as this like scrappy underdog, but still like six of seven, team, seven seasons, he had a talented, legitimate championship contender. And he won three playoff series during that time. Two times blew a 3-1 lead in the second round. Um, you know, like I would have said, oh yeah, like it's done. He's probably getting fired the day after game seven. But if you tell me, oh, but it's Doc Rivers with the Clippers. And I say, ah, nah, they, they give them another chance because it's Doc and it's the Clippers. And, you know, whether you want to go back to uh, how important he was for the franchise when the Do- Donald Sterling fiasco happened, or whether you just want to go back to like how big of a deal it was when they got Doc Rivers, when they traded, I believe, a first round pick to get Doc from the Celtics. The Clippers not that long ago were the NBA's biggest joke and the, the NBA's longest running joke. They were a complete laughing stock from top to bottom almost every year except maybe like once or twice a decade and doc rivers well obviously yes acquiring chris paul and you know drafting blake griffin obviously has a lot to do with it but that move to get doc rivers brought a level of relevancy and um i think a level of like seriousness of like oh they're really about it now that in my lifetime i don't remember the clippers ever having and so doc's work as a coach with those teams, you know, getting them to where they got to again, like how important he was for the franchise, navigating them through the Donald Sterling situation. It, it all kind of like, it needs to be taken into account because he wasn't just a standard coach that failed in the playoffs. He was a guy that really brought this team to a level. No one thought this franchise could ever get to, right? Like he, when he took over, they were the perennial laughing stock. And now when we laugh at them, it's because they're a legitimate contender almost every year that just can't get over the hump. And they're, yes, we're laughing either way, but there's a big difference, right? That, that's like a big jump for a franchise to make in less than a decade. And it's weird. He's almost like a victim of his success in that way, but it's also no excuse. Well, it's also no excuse. He all, he, he didn't get the job done as a coach in the, at the end of the day. And that was his job. He was the head coach. You know, he was he was the president for a little bit, but he was no mm. longer that. He was the head coach and he didn't get the job done. So I, I would just push back a little bit and say he didn't take over the team exactly when they were right. bottom of the barrel laughing stock. He took over when they already had Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, JJ Redick, took over, you know, for Vinny Del Negro after the team had won 56 games right. the year before. So you know, do I think he had a successful run there? Yes, I do. But I, I also think, you know, the infrastructure was in place when he took over. And, you know, to me, I think that the bigger challenge and the kind of unfairness of this is, and and I'm guilty of this too, because I was very critical of him for the decision to ride with Harrell over Zubac. I thought that was a big part of why they struggled in that series against Denver. And there have been reports coming out, you know, leaks from, somebody in the Clippers camp that there were players on that team that were upset with that decision as well and thought that Zubash should have played more, but also put yourself in Doc Rivers shoes. Here is a guy who has been such a foundational piece for your team for the last two years, won sixth man of the year this year had, you know, I think a large part to play in 
their regular season success and gave them an element of fire and energy that a lot of times they were otherwise lacking. And, you know, this guy is forced to leave the bubble environment because he loses somebody who is essentially a mother figure to him, comes back in, is out of shape, working to get himself back up to speed, and the playoffs roll around and he's struggling, but he's giving it his all. And like for Doc Rivers, like to to bench that guy is not just like some easy decision to make. I think we lose sight of the human element in all this. And, you know, that's also one thing that Doc has gotten a lot of credit for throughout his career is the way that he connects with people on a personal and an emotional level. And in a way, maybe that came back to bite him because he did ride with Harold for so long because he does value relationships so much. And, and, you know, we don't talk about that stuff enough, I don't think. Have you watched The Playbook on Netflix? No. It's, uh, I think actually it might've just, the funny thing is there's a chance I think it might've actually come out yesterday and the first episode is Doc Rivers, which is hilarious. But uh, anyway, it's only five episodes and it's, uh, it's kind of like looking into the lives and the philosophies, the life philosophies of five really famous coaches from around the world. And Doc Rivers is the first episode. I don't remember the other four other than um, Jose Mourinho, like maybe the most legendary soccer coach alive right now. Anyway. Uh, it's like 35 minute episodes, really good. Highly recommend it. But I watched the one on Doc last night, and I thought it was interesting because it was the day he got fired. And one of the things I noted, and you just kind of hit on it, was about you know how he prides himself and is respected for those relationships he builds. And at one point in this little documentary, he talks about how the one of the first pieces of advice he got when he was getting into coaching was don't get too close to the players. And he said his entire philosophy as a coach has been to do the exact opposite of that. And his exact thing, like words in the documentary were something like, don't get too close to the players. Well, no, I want to get close to the players. Like, I want to care about them. I want them to care about me. And he went on this little like rant about that. And I think it's really interesting to think about and to watch that and hear him talk about that in this documentary on the day he ends up getting fired for, among, you know, a host of other things, probably letting his relationship with Harold maybe getting in the way of the usual X's no stuff. So yeah, I, I just think that's really, really ironic. Yeah. And I mean, there is a flip side to that too, right? Which is that, and, and I first want to say that I, I do think Doc is like a great X's and O's coach as well. You know, he's not perfect, but he is a good tactician. I mean, his Celtics teams basically revolutionized modern defense. And with Thibodeau's, uh, with Thibodeau's help, absolutely. But, you know, Doc I think also an out, uh, an ATO king, like in terms of after time outplays, there are a few better. Absolutely. And even this Clippers team that, you know, a lot of times kind of just devolved into lazy isolation sets, you know, consistently ran good stuff coming out of timeouts. I think that's a good point. But I I think, you know, we're talking about his interpersonal skills and the fact that at least anecdotally, one of his greatest strengths as a coach is culture building. It does seem pretty clear that that didn't really happen this year. So you know, I guess there's two sides to that coin, right? You know, there's this element of relationship building and, and the bonds that he's able to forge with his players. And maybe part of that is that he had these strong pre-existing relationships with the guys who were part of the team last year and was never quite able to bridge that divide between those guys and the new guys who came in. But, at the, you know, at the same time, it's like that that is reputationally part of what he's about as a coach. And it seems like that locker room and that team kind of on court and off never really gelled or came together. 
look, man, whoever takes that job, it's going to be, it's going to be one hell of a tough job. And I know you can look at it from the flip side of like, you're in, you're, you're taking over a team of Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and a path to a championship, like deal with it. Fair enough. It's a good job, but it's also, man, you, you want to talk about a high pressure job. You know, Nick Nurse took over an extremely high pressure situation, obviously, in that the Raptors, I think, probably at like a 50-50 level knew that they had one shot to win it all or at least get to the finals and they got it done. But even that situation, Nick Nurse stepped into one for as good as a coach and as much of a culture builder as Dwayne Casey was in Toronto. And I don't ever want to take anything away from him there. He wasn't Doc Rivers. Like, sorry, he just wasn't. And he wasn't Doc Rivers with this franchise and what he's done. So one, there's that. Taking over from Doc Rivers is a different animal. And two, uh, Nick Nurse taking it over in Toronto. While yes, there were definitely some like bumps in the road related to the fact, you know, the franchise was getting over trading DeMar DeRozan. Kyle Lowry at the beginning of the year wasn't happy. There did not seem to be the same almost like toxic stew around the team that there seems to be with the Clippers right now. So like you're taking over this team. You got to take, you got to fill Doc's footsteps, like shoes. You got to navigate this kind of like weird, toxic, lack of chemistry environment. And you're going to do all that, not just with Kawhi's free agent, but with Paul George's and just like all the, you know, future minded stuff and all the assets they gave up. And like, it's, to me, this is like the, maybe the hardest and the highest pressure situation I can think of in my lifetime, not just of watching the NBA, maybe of watching sports of a coach <laughs> coming. I'm serious, man. Like it's kind of like win or go home. Like it's, it's win or bust. It's championship or bust, I think. And, and then if you lose one of those guys, like, as we've discussed, you know, it's a franchise catastrophe and you got to navigate all that while filling in for Doc Rivers. It's like this, this job is incredibly tough. That's why I think they really have to nail this hire. And whoever they do hire has to be ready for the pressure that's going to come with it. And I guess, you know, I'm wondering how much say is Kawhi going to have in that decision? I, I think it should go without saying, obviously, with him and PG both a year away from potential free agency, this decision to fire Doc does not come without their sign-off. I would hope, yeah. And obviously, you know, I saw a lot of people tweeting around the snippet from a, a feature last summer, basically, after Kawhi had signed there with an anecdote about how he said that he wanted to play specifically for Doc Rivers because he wanted to play for a championship head coach, even though he'd literally just won a championship. <laughs> with another with Nick But I always thought that that was overblown. Like, my feeling has always been that Kawhi wanted to play in LA, didn't want to play with LeBron on the Lakers, wanted to kind of have his own team essentially. So every other reported reason that was given for him signing with the Clippers was kind of just manufactured, including the Doc Rivers thing. Not that it's not true that Kawhi wanted to play for Doc Rivers or really respected Doc Rivers, just that I don't necessarily think that that was a deciding factor in his decision. So I don't think that that makes this any more surprising. Uh, I, I do think 100%, you know, not necessarily that Kawhi like went to management and said, I want Doc gone, but that he was absolutely consulted about this decision and was okay with it. So how much say is he going to have over who comes in next? And what kind of coach are they looking for? Who's that going to be? I mean, Ty Lu, I think, probably jumps to the top of the heap, right? He was just an assistant on their bench. And he's a guy who is seemingly in really high demand right now. He's been listed as a candidate for that Sixers job, for the Pelicans job. And, you know, if there's somebody who knows this situation, knows these players and 
has been in a high stakes, high pressure situation like that before, it's Ty Lue. Uh, so that to me would seem like a pretty natural fit. Yeah. And Ty Lue in his time in Cleveland proved to be a very good coach all around, yeah. you know, like had that combination that you seek in terms of like being astute with his X's and O's, but also being the motivator too. You know, like we've talked so much about how a lot of times coaches fall into one category and you find the one that can blend the two. Like those are usually the great coaches. Ty Lue did that. And as usual with LeBron coaches, like probably didn't get enough credit because everyone saw it as well. You have LeBron, you have a big three. Like a lot of people could have won that title and no, they couldn't have. Ty Lue did a great job in Cleveland. And I, uh, I, you know, I think he's going to get a job this off season. And oh yeah, without a doubt. I think... I think it only makes sense that he should be near or at the top of the list for the Clippers. Yeah, one thing you continually heard from LeBron while Ty Lue was coaching there was that he was willing to hold LeBron accountable. And I think given the way that the Clippers stars went out in that game seven against Denver, it seems pretty clear that that's what they need as well. And, and you know, not just the way that the playoff run ended, but also the fact that you know there, there are all these reports coming out throughout the season from that locker room that the guys who are holdovers from last year's sort of scrappy blue collar team weren't happy with the way that the stars were being treated. And I, you know, from everything we know about Ty Lue, he seems like the kind of person who might be able to bridge that divide. And like you said, I think tactically he's also been a, a really good coach. I think as far as making like adjustments, I mean, on those Cavs playoff runs, maybe people don't remember. Like, LeBron was obviously out of his mind, but the roster around him was not great. And it really became incumbent, I think, on Ty Lue to make some strategic tweaks that maximize the potential of that roster. And whether it was downsizing at the right time or going big at the right time, the option to kind of just completely change the team's defensive identity and go to like a switch everything system, specifically in like the 2017-18 playoffs. I think he always kind of pushed the right buttons. Uh, yeah, I see no reason why he wouldn't get a job. And honestly, I don't see a compelling reason why it wouldn't be the Clippers' job. Um, I guess we should maybe cap this by talking about... I I don't know if crisis is too strong a word, but... This is, you know, Doc is now the third black coach who has been fired this offseason, along with Nate McMillan and Alvin Gentry. We kind of had this conversation when Steve Nash was hired and jumped the line with Brooklyn. And that sparked a conversation about how former black players just don't tend to get <clears throat> that kind of leeway or get fast tracked as often as, you know, white former players do. And with those three guys fired this offseason, we now, I think, have, what, four black coaches in the league? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Lloyd Pierce, Dwayne Casey, J.B. Bickerstaff, and Monty Williams. Yep. I think and, that's it. Yeah. You know, and I would, hope, I, I would hope River Rivers is going to get hired. I think Lou will. Maybe even Sam Cassell, if, if you listen to it. So, so I, I think we'll go into next season with six or seven. Still not enough. Right. But, and maybe Wes Unsell Jr. That's been like yeah. a name on a lot of people's lips. Yeah. But, but yeah, as of right now, it's, you know, you have four black coaches in a 30-team league that's made up of 80% black players. And even though I think all three of those decisions were more or less justifiable in a vacuum, if you kind of zoom out and take a big picture view, it is a problem. And I, I don't know if it's gotten to a point or if it will get to the point where they need to have something akin to like the NFL's Rooney rule. 
But I think just given all the conversations that have been going on throughout the restart about what the league can do to start to even the scales a little bit, you know, obviously they've been talking more about big picture stuff and stuff outside of basketball, but within the sport, which is a huge multi-billion dollar institution, I do think there is a lot that can be done and needs to be done in order to allow more opportunity to, you know, the, the black people who have made the game what it is for its entire history. Yeah, they built the league, you know, um, and turned it into the insanely profitable and relevant entertainment empire it is. Like, funny enough, we um, in like a company Slack channel, there a link was shared today, I'm not sure if you read it, but about how like Generation Z is basically falling off the sports fandom wagon compared to previous generations. And the one interesting thing in that is that out of the major sports, the only one where viewership actually went up from millennials and from all adults to current generation Z is the NBA. And it is so well positioned to be like the sports entertainment leader of the next generation. And again, that was built upon the work and the skill and of mostly black players. And you can't like hide from that. It, this is a predominantly black league where we're saying if things break right, six or seven of the 30 head coaches will be black. Masai Ujiri is the only black full decision maker out of 30 teams in the league. You can't run from the fact that that does not add up. How does that happen? Like in what other industry? And I know there are don't get me wrong. I know there are plenty of industries where representation um, is severely lacking. But what I was going to say is like in what other industry other than the NBA and probably the NFL do you get where the – I don't know what you'd compare coaches to in other industries, bosses or the GMs or whatever. But like it just doesn't add up and it, it like it needs to be addressed. And I, I don't know. I don't have the answers. You know, you mentioned maybe the NBA doing what the NFL did with the Rooney rule. You know, yeah, that's probably a start. I hope that there are even more things that they can do to address the issue because the NFL hasn't really fixed it. You know, they might have amended it in a way, but they haven't fixed it and fully addressed it. And the NBA is going to need to because it doesn't make sense. And it's, you know, while as we discussed at the time, I, the Nash hire, I think, was probably more about at least one of Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving wanting that to be done. Him in the Doc Rivers situation, you know, if anything, he got more leeway than any, like most coaches would, regardless of race. So even though these two specific hiring and firings don't, um, aren't like a microcosm of that situation, there's still a bring up like a good opportunity to talk about the situation that just needs to be addressed. And, uh, yeah, like I don't know what to say other than to say, I hope the league finds a way to address it because it does, doesn't add up. Well, you mentioned, I mean, Doc Rivers is going to land on his feet. And yep. he, according to Mark Spears, he's already spoken to the Pelicans and 76ers about their opening. So that didn't take very long at all. And I mean, I don't know if he'll have his pick of the litter necessarily, but just looking around the league, I mean, I cannot remember an offseason where there have been this many appealing coaching positions available. Like vacancies on really good teams from the Clippers now to the Sixers to the Rockets to the Pacers, uh, you know, help throw the Pelicans into that mix. Uh, the Nets obviously filled their vacancy, but that was, you know, a, a high profile position yeah. on a contender that was up for grabs before Dude, they the, filled it. It's, the Pelicans it's pretty crazy. The, 
Yeah, the Pelicans are the worst team with a vacancy, and the worst team with a vacancy also has the potential next, like, absolute transcendent star in the league that you can build perhaps a championship. Like, there's not a single, quote-unquote, bad job. And I think the other thing, like, you mentioned you don't remember a time when there were this many appealing coaching vacancies. I don't remember a time when, like, there were this many legitimately good, like, maybe franchise-changing coaches themselves on the market because it's rare you have this many good coaches either stepping down or being fired in the same offseason. Like, you know, in a regular offseason, a guy like Mike D'Antoni being available is like, well, pick of the litter. But this year, it's like Mike D'Antoni, Doc Rivers, probably at the head of the line, Ty Lue, who we just spoke about, you know, Sam Cassell, we don't know um, whether we can call him a good coach or not. But even just those three. Kenny Atkinson. Kenny Atkinson, yeah. Like, between Rivers, D'Antoni, Nate McMillan, honestly. Nate McMillan. Like, we're talking about five really, really good coaches at different levels. And yeah, I just, I I think between the like high profile vacancies and also the high profile coaches, it's uh, maybe the most fascinating year on the coaching carousel. Yeah. And maybe we will just see kind of them play musical chairs. I mean, the thing is, I'm usually not a huge fan of going the retread route. I just think the teams that have kind of thought more outside the box and found whether it's up and coming assistant coaches or, you know, from the G league or the college ranks have tended to have more success, I think, than those who, I don't know, just pull a coach off the scrap heap because they maybe had some success in the NBA seven or eight years ago. But in this case, I think there are so many really good retread candidates available that it would be hard to quibble with any decision to that effect this offseason. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see kind of where everybody lands and what direction these teams go. Um, But I think we should probably maybe move on and talk about the NBA Finals now. (laughs) After, you know, 40-odd minutes of rambling, why don't we talk about the two teams that are about to contend for the championship? Yeah, sounds like a good plan. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, so the Lakers and the Heat, we talked a little bit about what makes the matchup interesting from a narrative perspective. The Heat getting a crack at LeBron, what, six years now after he spurned them to go back to Cleveland and left Pat Riley in a huff holding the bag. And... You have, you know, Eric Spolstra going up against LeBron in a playoff series for the first time. And we kind of touched on this in our preview. You mentioned LeBron's last playoff failure, which was 2011 against Dallas in the finals. It was the first year of the big three heat. And I just cannot help but wonder whether that series has been on Eric Spolstra's mind because nobody knows better than him and nobody saw firsthand in the way that he did how 
a particular defensive strategy that involved a pretty healthy dose of zone could break LeBron down. And the Heat obviously have been playing more zone than anybody for the last two years. They didn't play it at all for the first two two rounds of the playoffs, but they broke it out on something like a quarter of their defensive possessions against the Celtics in the conference finals. Had a lot of success with it. There were diminishing returns, and the Celtics really started to figure it out toward the end of the series. I see something similar probably happening in the finals. Not that the Lakers aren't going to be prepared for it, but I do think that we're going to see, at least at the start, a lot of that Miami zone. And I think for as much as LeBron has changed and grown as a player in the last nine years, there are still a lot of ways in which a zone can take him out of his rhythm and give him trouble, especially now with the kind of shaky way that he's been shooting the basketball. Like he's shooting 28% on pull-up jumpers in the playoffs and 32% from 16 feet and beyond. He's really dependent on driving to the basket, on getting to the free throw line. And I think we've seen like that heat zone, especially with, you know, when it's Jimmy Butler and Derek Jones Jr. at the top of it, all arms and strength and speed, like it's really hard to puncture that zone and to drive through it. And even when you do get into the middle of it, it's hard to get all the way to the basket. And another thing which I pointed out is like the Heat actually, they, they slash their, their rate of shooting fouls in half when they go from man to man to zone. So that's another potential way that they can keep LeBron off the free throw line. And I, I think, again, the Lakers will have counters to that. I think putting Anthony Davis in the middle of that zone can also cause problems for them. But I do think as kind of a change up, you know, an ace up their sleeve, it's something that we'll probably see a lot of to begin with and could be an interesting wrinkle in the series. Yeah. And I think it also um, forces more questions about like how the Lakers and how Vogel will manage their own rotation, right? You'd think you you have a better chance to beat a zone with more playmaking and shooting on the floor, right? And so you think, okay, you go with their optimal lineup anyway, with AD at the five, and you replace one of Howard or McGee with another ball handler size shooter. I don't know whether that's Caruso or whoever you want to throw in there. But as you mentioned in our post, you might want like a Dwight on a BAM, you know, or something like that. I just think there are so many interesting wrinkles in this series where like there are, there are trade-offs that obviously always exist with these matchup questions. But I think especially in this series, you can look at it and that like, that's another thing I'm interested in. Like what you mentioned putting AD at the center of that zone to try to attack it. But like, can you, especially with the way LeBron's shooting right now, like, can you have LeBron and Dwight Howard? on the floor while the heat are playing zone. I don't think so. Hell, can you have, can you have LeBron and Rondo on the floor together when the heat are like Rondo's playmaking would be, would be really nice yeah. in it. But, and I mean, I joke, I, I sent you a message last night letting you know that Rondo actually has the highest three point percentage in the playoffs and Lakers. I don't expect that will continue. But yeah. like, no, no, I think you can. Um, I, I just think that if you do have both LeBron and Rondo on the floor and the heat are zoning up, you really have to be able to puncture it, right? Like you got to be able to drive into the middle of that zone. If you're just swinging the ball around the perimeter, then that's when it's going to get really problematic. I mean, I do think that Dwight can pose some challenges as well, just with his ability to get up for lobs. And the rim is often left naked, especially with that heat zone where they use it to kind of overload the strong side of the floor. 
And especially with LeBron, uh, LeBron and Rondo's lob passing ability, I think that's one potential counter that the Lakers can bring. And also the fact that they've been an incredible offensive rebounding team. And that's another area of vulnerability for his own defense. It's taking care of your own glass. Like it's, if you're not matching up with specific players, it can be really hard to box out five guys in the time it takes for a shot to go up and then come off the rim. And Dwight's offensive rebounding was absolutely huge in that series against Denver. So I, I do think that they can work around some of their limitations uh, and some of the ways that the zone can take advantage of those limitations. And I think, you know, to your point about just matchups in general, I'm curious to see like which one of these teams has to adjust because exactly because the Lakers are going to start out playing big. I feel pretty confident in saying that. And I feel pretty confident in saying the heat are going to continue to start. I'll put small in air quotes because Bam to me is like a legitimate center, but they had him playing the four for a lot of the year and for a center, he is still pretty short. And I think the question and the potential dilemma that that raises is, all right, so what do the Heat do defensively in that situation? Because to me, I think they just want to have Bam on AD as much as possible. And there's an argument maybe that if the Lakers play one of their non-shooting centers who aren't really threats to do anything offensively except sky for dunks and putbacks, that maybe gives Bam a little bit more leeway to help. And he's a fantastic help defender rather than having him guard AD where he's not really going to be available as a helper. He's kind of just going to be stapled to Davis at the same time. If you do that, like, I don't know, man, I just think that AD can kind of chew up whatever non Bam defender, the heat throw at him. And that would worry me a little bit. And on the other hand, if the heat want to stay smaller, put Bam on AD and they put a smaller guy on Howard or McGee, say it's Jay Crowder, then those guys can really get busy on the offensive glass. And maybe the Heat just live with that and they say, look, if we've got Crowder guarding Dwight Howard, we're going to get cross matches going the other way where Dwight is going to have to match up with Jay Crowder and that's going to be a problem for the Lakers. I don't know. There's just like a lot of different ways that it could go. Uh, And I... I mean, maybe, like, I think Kelly Olynyk will have a place in this series. And I think maybe there will be times when Bam does play the four and Kelly Olynyk is playing the five and he's the one who is banging bodies with Howard and McGee and Bam is staying on uh, AD and that's how the Heat choose to match up. And, you know, Olynyk at the other end of the floor can stretch those big guys out and that has value as well. I know you mentioned that that could be dangerous if LeBron is on the floor because LeBron has a tendency to hunt Kelly Olynyk and that just makes it incumbent on the Heat to avoid putting Olenek in switches. And that's, that does not just go for Olenek. Like, I think they are going to be way less switchy in this series than they were against the Celtics because we saw LeBron go mismatch hunting against Denver. Like, he hunted MPJ. He hunted Jamal Murray. Not always, like, incredibly successfully, but for the most part, pretty successfully, and he did it a lot. And he's going to do the same thing to Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson and Dragic and Olenek if Olenek's on the floor. And I think the Heat are going to need to do a better job of avoiding those switches. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, as I mentioned in our preview, the Olenek thing, you know, maybe it's me putting too much stock in 
playoff matchups that happened two plus years ago. But man, if you remember some of those Cavs Celtics series or just like his targeting of Kelly Olynyk was like merciless in a way that even LeBron hunting isn't usually. And yeah, like I, I see what you're saying. And I think there are advantages for the heat to roll with Olenek, but man, you really got to hope that you can avoid the switches that LeBron will be hunting. Because if, if you fall victim to them, he will absolutely tear you apart if he gets Olenek on him. And then on the other end, one, one of the things I did, and I mentioned in the post, but I think you brought up a good counterpoint is if they have Howard and AD both on the floor, I assumed AD would be on BAM. And I, and I thought the issue there for the Lakers is like, now you got to stash Howard on like a Crowder or something. And in most situations, you can think, okay, you stash like Dwight on a corner shooter or something, whatever, you live with it. But in Miami's like very pass and move heavy system and with like all their cuts, that's not a traditional just stash Dwight in the corner kind of thing. That's like, you're going to need Dwight to like, what, chase Jay Crowder around streets. Like it doesn't really make sense. You brought up the point that you think Dwight on BAM actually makes more sense. And then you can have AD maybe on a guy like Crowder. I guess my concern there was like, do you, do you really think Dwight can can hang with with Bam? Look, I, I think Dwight's had a fantastic defensive season, but Bam's such a unique player. I, I don't know if Dwight's up to that defensive task. And to me, it seems like AD's the perfect guy that would be up to it. So are, is that you saying that you think the Lakers will be the team to adjust and and they go smaller with AD at the five or? I think so. I think so. Because I think, I think they'll come to realize at some point in this series, like AD on Bam is the way to go. And, but again, I could be wrong. Maybe, who knows? Maybe Dwight comes out in game one and just absolutely bottles Bam up. And then this right. whole conversation's moot. But the way I would see it going is they realize Dwight maybe doesn't have the like lateral chops anymore to like really stay with a guy like Bam. They realize AD is their best option there. And if the AD is their best option, you don't want Dwight on a guy like Crowder. And yeah. so that's when the Lakers adjust, go small, have AD at the five, maybe bring in, um, you know, whether it's Caruso for the playmaking and the shooting that can help against the zone too. Like, I don't know. But yeah, I, I think that's the way it would go. What about you? I think that Bam would probably foul Dwight out in like 18 minutes. And I think the Lakers would probably just live with that. Like give him his 18 minutes and... Yeah, if he fouls out, he fouls out. But I, I think Dwight has actually moved pretty well laterally. I think, honestly, the bigger challenge for him would just be all the screening actions, like the pick and rolls and the dribble handoffs that the Heat run off of Bam. And is he going to be able to kind of stay up high, take away, say, a Duncan Robinson three off of a dribble handoff without losing contact with Bam if Bam slips the screen? Stuff like that, you know, where he's just going to have to be able to toggle between multiple guys at once. And that's something that I don't know if he has the speed to do anymore. But like as far as just his strength and his individual interior defense, I think that he could do fine on Bam for the most part. I mean, he did okay on Jokic and Jokic is a much better interior scorer than Bam is, at least in one-on-one -on -one terms, like Bam is a different kind of scorer, like a rim runner who can give you a lot of vertical spacing, but uh, doesn't pose the same kind of threat that Jokic does in the post. So I I'm really interested to see that. Now, uh, like maybe it just settles in where, yeah, the Lakers are playing with AD at the five and the Heat are playing with Bam at the five and both teams are kind of just happy with that and they're really yeah. comfortable in that alignment. But maybe one of those teams wants to press the issue and maybe that means the Lakers saying, you know, we're giving up a little bit but we're also making Miami a little bit uncomfortable by doing it. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I also just think that the Lakers kind of like 
their defensive alignment better with two bigs on the floor. I do think the the way that Miami runs their offense changes that equation a little bit. Like it's not just the sort of basic two-man game that they were going up against in Denver, right? Like everybody on the floor for Miami is essentially a threat to screen, cut, shoot, put the ball on the floor at all times. And that can put a different kind of stress on your defense, I think, than when you're just sort of loading up on a two-man game and hoping that you can recover well enough to the spot-up shooters playing around those two guys. It's it's a different challenge. And maybe that makes it more difficult for them to play the kind of too-big defense that they've been accustomed to playing. Yeah, Miami pass moves, shoots, and cuts you to death. And uh, I, think, I, I think they can do that at an increased level if the Lakers have two bigs on the floor. It's funny to me because like as as we preview the series and as I like took time to really think about it and watch stuff and look at the rosters and and think about like all the matchup machinations in my head, I kept coming back to the fact, you know, as I, I just mentioned, I think the Lakers might be the first team that has to adjust. I think the Heat top to bottom are I don't want to say the better team because LeBron and AD are part of the team. They make the Lakers the better team. But I think you know where I'm going with this. And like, you know, Jimmy and Bam is a pretty damn good top two as well. It's not LeBron and AD, but it's pretty damn good, right? And when you go back, like past the top two guys on each team, it's like the Heat are overwhelmingly better from three down than the Lakers. And then like everything, everything I think to myself, every like logical thing I can put on paper, all the matchup stuff, the adjustment stuff, I'm thinking like, Coaching, you know, as much as I like Frank Vogel, he's not Eric Spolstra. And, and like everything comes back to like, man, I think logically I should pick the Heat in this series. Like, I think they might just be the better team. And like, it is what it is. And and so it feels almost like a cop-out on my end because I'm literally just picking the Lakers because, as I mentioned in the preview, after that 2011 failure, obviously, and the debacle that was, what we learned in like the nine years since then is that you're only probably eliminating LeBron James. You're only beating him four times out of seven in a playoff series if you're like a truly great team, like a legendary team. Like he's he's that good. He's got that much of a playoff gear and forget playoff gear. He's got a finals gear too. Like we've seen it time and time and time again, no matter how outgunned he is, okay? And as much as I believe in this Heat team, they're not the 2014 Spurs and they're sure as hell not the Warriors um, that beat LeBron. And I know you can make the argument while well, these Lakers aren't, um, those Heat teams or or even those Cavs teams, but I just I think I I just I've seen too much from LeBron, and I think AD is too good of a teammate, and they have just enough everywhere else that I just can't see this Heat team. Even though I'm basically conceding that they have the matchup advantage in a lot of areas, I don't think this Heat team, as good as they are, is good enough to beat LeBron James four times in seven games. And it feels silly because I like. We'll go through all the X's and O's. And, and again, I'm, I'm conceding. I think the Heat have some matchup advantages. And we'll go through that and I'll be like, yeah, but it kind of doesn't matter because they're not beating LeBron James. I do think that the 2014 Spurs is a not crazy comparison for this team. In terms of how their offense flows, how well they move the ball. I mean, they play the beautiful game. And they have just this element of cohesion and depth and balance and toughness that I think that Spurs team also exemplified. And, you know, you say, look, they're not a truly great team. I don't know if they're a truly great team either, but they've been playing like one. 
through the first three rounds of the playoffs, and they have beaten some damn good teams in really convincing fashion to get to where they are. I absolutely think they can win the series. I picked Lakers in seven, but it honestly feels close to a coin flip to me. And so, of course, in that situation, I am going to give the edge to the team that has LeBron James and Anthony Davis. But I think, you know, you run a scenario like this a hundred times where one team is talented, but they don't have a top 10 player and they're built more on like depth and balance, you know, versus another team that has two of the, let's say, seven best players in the league. And I think, you know, 95 times out of 100, the team with the two superstars wins. But I think that this Heat team, the the way that they're constructed, the way that they play and the way that they're coached, the character of the team, that to me puts them in the category of the kind of team that could be one of those, you know, five out of 100 that bucks the trend. And I still don't really trust the Lakers supporting cast beyond those top two guys. You said I, like the Lakers have the top two players in the series and the Heat have, I would say, the next six at least. And and, and I will say, I'm not even sure they have the top two. Like, I, I'm not convinced Anthony Davis is better than Bam. Oh, man, I don't know. He wow. is. He, no, no, he is. That's, he is. He is. That's he is. a scalding hot take. He is. He's definitely better than Bam. But I, man, I don't like, do you think a fully, this is my one time to get this done, Jimmy Butler can't be better than Anthony Davis in this series? Like, no, he can be. I mean, anything yeah. can happen. <laughs> but no, if we're just looking at it, right. you know, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. objectively, like what should happen, what will happen the vast majority of the time, it's that right. Anthony Davis will be the second best player in the series. And Jimmy Butler is great, but I think Bam's the best player on the Heat. I don't even think that's a controversial take at this point. Like he was easily their best player last round. That stretch that he went on when the Heat pulled away in the fourth quarter of game six was psychotic. Like yeah. he went to another level. His eyes lit up when Tice was in the game and it just, and they never, they never closed. Yeah. And, and so like, you know, I, I would honestly think, I mean, Anthony Davis is a pretty good fire quencher, a guy that you can kind of throw onto Bam and I don't know if snuff him out, but like really limit what he can do. But I think that if there is a Heat player who can be the second best player in this series, then it is Bam and not Jimmy, just because he's like so dynamic defensively. You know, I, I think the, the damage that he is able to do offensively, as much as like, I think he's beyond just being a dependent scorer. Like we saw, he's been able to put the ball on the floor. He can initiate, uh, he can burn big guys off of the bounce, like, he can shoot a little bit off of the dribble. He's got a bit of an in-between game. Like he can get his own offense, but a lot of it is still dependent on what his teammates are able to do and the attention that they're able to garner and then how he feasts off of that in the pick and roll. So can these other players on the heat, their guards specifically, you know, whether it's Jimmy or Dragic or Tyler Hero, are they going to shoot the pull-up jumper well enough to force LA's bigs to come up higher on the floor? Are they going to force LA to trap? Are they going to force LA to switch? Are they going to essentially pose enough of a threat that Bam is then able to do what he does best, which is slip screens, catch the ball on the roll, 
you know, whether it's a lob or whether it's a pass on a short roll and just either explode to the basket or use his incredible passing ability to pick apart a four on three. Yeah. With all and, those huge cutters. Yeah, exactly. And and so that, you know, part of that is going to depend on how well those guys are shooting the ball. Uh, I think Dragic and Hero especially. And, you know, whether they're creating enough dribble penetration and have the off the dribble juice to engage second defenders that can peel some attention away from Bam and allow him to get going in space. So, you know, there, there's, there's always a symbiosis, obviously, between teammates. Like, one guy can't do it himself, and one player playing well tends to have a ripple effect where it makes everybody's jobs a little bit easier. Um, so I think, you know, as much as I believe in Bam, he still needs the guys around him to play well in order for him to be at his best. Yeah, um, I think it's crazy. I think among the cacophony of crazy things that have happened in 2020, one of the craziest is that you're talking me into the heat in this series, which in the finals. Yeah. Uh, well, to be fair, I've also not been a huge Lakers believer this season. So I think that factors into it. But I mean, I am a convert, man. It's impossible not to be like this is for one thing. This isn't the same heat team that we saw pre-bubble. And I think a lot of my doubts have been lingering doubts from the team that they were before. Look, Bam has gotten better. They have changed the their lineup construction. They're not playing Kendrick Nunn anymore. They're not playing Myers Leonard anymore. They started those two guys the last time they played the Lakers, by the yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. And, and they've they've changed the way that they play, especially defensively, where you know they weren't this switch-heavy team before all this started. And they almost have an entirely new identity. So... You know, we talked about this so many times, how we kind of have to just treat this like a whole new season. And if we're treating it like a whole new season, I mean, I don't know that there's a convincing argument that the Heat haven't been the best team in the league. So again, I picked the Lakers in seven. I trust LeBron implicitly, and that's why. But just in terms of like looking at this matchup on paper, I, I see no reason why the Heat can't make it extremely competitive and potentially even pull off the upset. I went Lakers in six. Uh, I will say, though, one thing that came to my mind when when you were talking about how the Heat actually, like the 2014 Spurs actually aren't the worst comparison and, and, and why the Heat might be able to beat this team with these like two superstars, which would usually win 95 out of 100. And it made me think. So LeBron James and Anthony Davis this year um, both made first team All-NBA. The last time two teammates were first team All-NBA was Kobe and Shaq on the 2003-2004 Lakers, which were heavily favored in the finals against the Pistons team that didn't have a top 10 player. Now, obviously, were constructed very different, a lot more defensive-minded, didn't have the same beautiful offense as he team had, but that Pistons team was very uniquely um, capable of being that 5 and 100 that could be the team with the top two players by far in the series. And so, I don't know. I just think that's a, that's a really interesting... Kind of wrinkle here. But that like, Lakers team was also combusting internally. Yeah, they were completely just falling apart at the seams. Completely so. dysfunctional. And this Lakers team, you know, for all the doubts I have about the supporting cast and how top-heavy they are, actually seems to be pretty well in sync, especially defensively. Like, they play yeah. well together, and, and they seem to enjoy playing together. Both teams, and, you can say, yeah. Yeah. So I think it'll be a good series. Like, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Uh, I do think... I, I think the Heat are going to have to change the way that they've been defending. Like, I just think 
The biggest thing to me is like they don't really need to switch against the Lakers because the Lakers don't pose remotely the same kind of pull-up shooting threat that the Celtics did, right? So I think, you know, whether it's just that they're dropping back, going under screens, um, in the case of LeBron trying to hunt guys like Hero or Dragic, like hard hedging and trying to recover. And, you know, if the Lakers are running LeBron small pick and rolls, just hoping that Caruso or KCP or Rondo or, or whoever it is setting the screen is like not hitting a ton of threes when they're flaring out off of those screens and you're just able to survive. I, I just think they they don't need to be as switchy as they've been. But I, I think there are going to be, like over the course of this series, there are going to be a ton of just sort of adjustments and counter adjustments. And I can't wait to see it. Yeah, my last note is, uh, and it's not really necessarily pertaining to this series, but like I had seen something floating around about how the Heat, if you, if you look at the last 15 seasons, the Heat have the most finals appearances now. They've got six. And what I thought was just really interesting to note is that they've done it with three very different teams and three di- very different styles. And I know Spolster's only been technically with two of those three teams, but he was also an assistant with the first one. And and I just think it's really interesting to note, like the, the first one in 06, when they won it with Dwayne Wade and Shaquille O'Neal, obviously a very different team and a different era of basketball when Shaq was, even at that stage of his career, still a very you know dominant interior force. And Wade went ham as like a, an individual superstar in the finals that is still by the way to my mind 2006 the greatest individual playoff performance i think that i've ever seen wade in that finals that whole postseason honestly because Shaq wasn't entirely washed at that point but he was like a solidly above average center like he was not a superstar by any means like wade carried that team to a level that I don't, I, I haven't seen an individual player do in the playoffs since then. Uh, yeah, I'd say for me, it's like that. That is up there for sure. Shaq in like one is probably up there. Duncan in a couple of like Duncan had some pretty insane. Duncan runs. in O three, yes, when he almost had the quadruple double in a finals yeah. game. Dirk in twenty eleven had a pretty insane run too. I mean, I don't know. There's been a lot, but Wade Wade is definitely up there. But yeah, like if you look and at the LeBron way that, LeBron in twenty seventeen eighteen, even though they yeah, didn't win, like exactly, yeah. But yeah, like that, the way that 06 E team played was obviously very different and kind of like a, a team of a bygone era. And then the big three era Heat won their titles and got to the finals with the pace and space, you know, using their insane, um, yeah, their superstar talent for sure, but also their just insane athleticism to com- completely overwhelm you, get out in transition um, and destroy you. And then this team, which is like, lacking what Wade was in 06 or what LeBron and Wade were in the in with the big three team and you know where the big three would overwhelm you with just athleticism and getting out in transition and pace and space this heat team is this like slow methodical as I said pass move cut shoot you to death and it, it's just really impressive to me you know for all for all we talk about how like Miami has the advantage of just being Miami and that's why you get a Jimmy Butler or you get a LeBron because you know they have that unfair advantage of just being in the better market And as much as we say all that stuff, like sometimes it gets lost that while they made some mistakes post LeBron for sure, this is also just like a really, really, really well-run organization with Pat Riley at the top. They've stuck with Spolstra for a long time. They have a very clear identity in the whole heat culture thing that I know is off-sided, but they are also a very malleable franchise when it comes to style and changing with the times and adapting to the times and adapting to their roster. And yeah, I just think it's impressive. Um, you know, obviously impressive that a team has made the final six time in 15 seasons, but more so impressive that they've done it with three very different iterations of the team playing three different, very different styles of basketball. 
Shout out to the Godfather, man. It's uh, good to see him back yeah. where he belongs. Yeah. Also, okay. The, on that note, then someone else tweeted. I think Pat Riley. Now, if you include him being a player, this is now the sixth decade he has appeared in an NBA Finals in some capacity. Not bad, Riles. Not bad. Man. I think uh, we can put a bow on this, and we will reconvene in two, three days once the finals are already underway. And I'm sure we'll have loads to talk about from that. But for now, we're going to sign off. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Come the Rock.